Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. On Friday, I got a call from a very nice reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution who asked me about a new study looking at prenatal exposures and biological processes in people with autism, and they were studied even before they were born. I was shocked. I thought I knew about every one of these studies because mostly they come from medical records in Scandinavian countries or from things like the Early Autism Risk Longitudinal Cohort Study, which studies pregnant women. So how is anyone else looking directly at prenatal exposures? As it turns out, baby teeth. Baby teeth are formed as early as the second trimester of pregnancy and continue until they emerge around age six months to a year. They hold different exposures and they can also reflect different biological processes at different times during this development. The layers of teeth are like rings on a tree. At the bottom center are reflections of things going on at the earliest stages of pregnancy and then each layer on top reflects exposures when the fetus gets older and older and then it stops forming when the tooth finally emerges. Thanks to better technology, each layer can be removed with a laser. I had heard about these studies many years ago, but back then, researchers just dumped the teeth in a blender and got some measure of exposure over that entire period of time from second trimester of pregnancy to whenever they fell out. This study, however, represents a much more sophisticated way of understanding what's going on at different times during development prior to birth, which also coincides with when the brain develops. Now, this study included baby teeth from twins born in Sweden. One twin had autism and the other did not. Using a twin model minimizes, but it does not eliminate genetic influences and can reduce variability in understanding the results. Of course, for identical twins, the genetics are more similar than for fraternal twins. And the thing about baby teeth, though, as I'm personally learning now, parents, I mean the tooth fairy, gets them on the night they have been lost and they put them in a drawer or in an envelope in a box And they don't really know what to do with them when the kids get older. And actually, at some point, they look into these envelopes and these boxes, and they kind of feel like a serial killer with all these little trophies. Then the whole thing becomes creepy, and parents want to get rid of them. But of course, that's other people, not me, of course. So these other people are okay giving away these baby teeth. It's not painful, it's not harmful, and there's minimal drama. Parents can even drop them in the mail. For those of you, and again, not me, who just dumped them in a pile, research sites have dentists who can identify what tooth is what. And something else of note, some teeth develop sooner than others and will be lost sooner than others. Anyway, extensive use of these baby teeth for studying and understanding autism is becoming more and more apparent. Some researchers are using the pulp or cells inside the tooth to extract cells and do genetic and neurobiology studies. But researchers at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, which include Manish Aurora, are lasering them down and studying what is in each layer. Again, baby teeth are formed before birth and they get formed in layers. Each layer is a different time of development from days to weeks. The opportunities are endless. But for this particular study, they wanted to look at metals. Now, there was this project at Autism Speaks that was using the whole tooth to look at presence of pesticides. So it can be looked at other things other than just metals, but they looked at metals. And they didn't just look at the level of metals. They did it a little bit more elegantly. They looked at the cyclical variability in metal presence. 
remember with baby teeth, they're formed in layers. And so you can get kind of a timeline of different exposures over the course of prenatal history all the way to six months to a year. Some metals in your body are bad, like methylmercury and trimethyltin and the big L word, which is lead. But some are necessary for normal biological function, like copper and zinc. Now, you can have too much copper and zinc, of course, but there's also the right amount. They ebb and flow like a tide in your body to meet the biological needs of of your cells, as sometimes they're high and sometimes they're low. Think of it as an up-down, up-down, up-down. This is normal, and there are a lot of biological processes that are regulated by this ebb and flow. So rather than looking at just the total levels, why not look at the ebb and flow? Why not look in the ebb and flow in every biological study? Well, why hasn't that been done before? Well, okay, for one thing, let's say, let's go through 10-day cycles. Would you want to have your blood taken every day or every hour to look at the ebb and flow of copper and zinc levels? No, I don't think so. Now, maybe urine, and that's been done, but you don't really have daily urine of fetuses available. Also, who would really want to do all this unless there was a reason? And how else can you measure things in cycles then? Well, apparently you can use baby teeth. Now, this is a biological substrate that captures different cycles of exposures in different tooth layers. By lasering different layers of the tooth, researchers at Mount Sinai School of Medicine saw that the cycles of zinc and copper were different in kids diagnosed with autism compared to their undiagnosed twin, and then it was replicated in a different sample. Specifically, these copper and zinc cycles were shorter in duration, and they were not as regular as those who did not have autism. The reporter asked me why this was important and if it could be a diagnostic marker. Well, first of all, I don't think this will be a useful diagnostic marker for autism. While it is sensitive, it's probably not specific. There are other things that may be causing these changes in zinc and copper cycling. And while you could potentially have your baby tooth sent to a lab and have them check for this cycle, I think there's probably more promising and more specific early markers of autism than varying copper and zinc levels in baby teeth. So why is this important? Well, it's always, always, always important to understand the very early biological underpinnings of autism, and now it has been shown that it can be done using a very non-invasive method, baby teeth. And most parents, well, of course not me, but most parents would be thrilled to give their baby teeth away. So autism parents, now there is a valid use for those bone fragments that are taking up room in your dresser drawer. And while this study does not say that altered metal cycles are what causes autism, it is a step to understand how cycles in metal concentrations may be reflective of altered biological processes. Well, actually, there's also another step. To understand these biological processes, they'll probably need to do studies in blood or skin or something to look at active pathways. But it's a very important start. Speaking of epidemiological studies that lead to new findings that will be helpful for families, a new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, you know, that flimsy thing called JAMA that nobody in the medical community reads, that was sarcasm, by the way, used the National Survey of Children's Healthcare Needs to look in a large study, the largest so far, if food allergies or other type of allergies are linked to autism. Now, as it turns out, in boys, yes, Food allergies, respiratory allergies, and skin allergies are associated with autism, but not in girls. Wait, 
hold on a second. That's what the researchers interpreted, and that's what the statistics say, but in girls, the effect approached but did not reach significance, meaning there's probably a good likelihood that with more girls in the study, they would have seen this effect. So let me give you an example. Statistical significance is normally used with a number called 0.01. Anything lower than that number is considered statistically significant. In girls, the effect was 0.7. So it wasn't like it was that far away from statistically significant. But this begs the question again, why were there only 400 girls but 1,400 boys? More boys, of course, are diagnosed with autism. So let's assume for a second the effect was there for both boys and girls. Why is this important? This is the largest study so far that shows that food allergies are linked to autism. Most of the other studies before had been small and had lots of methodological problems. But it also wasn't just food allergies. It was other allergies like respiratory allergies and skin allergies, reiterating that in some children with autism, there's an abnormality in the immune system response that causes a variety of problems. Now, this study isn't perfect either. The study they used was a complete parent report. This needs to be replicated in a study which used a medical record of a diagnosed allergy. Because this was an allergy, no allergy study, there was no way to quantify the severity or say that there was a particular subgroup. They didn't look at other comorbid medical conditions and they didn't have autism severity. So the study is somewhat limited, but that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. As you've all heard me say, sometimes when scientists need large numbers, they have to sacrifice the detail of the data. In other words, you can have a little bit of data on lots of people or lots of data on a fewer number of people. There may be different ways to treat allergies in people with autism compared to those without autism, and this needs further study. So what are the morals of this podcast? Answer those questionnaires when they're given to you, even if they seem stupid and they have nothing to do with autism because you never know. Answer them to the best of your ability and keep answering them, even if they don't necessarily seem relevant. They could be important. And keep your child's baby teeth. You never know what they can be used for. If you want to get rid of them, call the Seaver Center at Mount Sinai School of Medicine at 212 241 You can also email them at the Seaver Center at mssm mount sinai school of medicine dot edu thanks for listening this week